Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you. And then I forgot my Bible. Adam, would you please bring me the Bible that's on the table that I set there to not forget? That's the one. We're not going to get very far without one of those. Thank you, my friend. I totally lost my train of thought. Thank you for coming out early on New Year's Eve to New Year's Day to start your year worshiping God. What a great way to begin a new year to be in church. And it seems to me that if uh, if we're going to start out the new year being in church, it would be a really good idea to start the beginning of our year in the beginning. And so if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. One of these. It's called a New Believer's Bible. The opening part of it has got so much information for someone who is new to the faith or just maybe you're wondering, what do I do? How do I begin to live as a Christian? I'm going to start teaching out of this one from now on, the New Living Translation. It's different than what I've been using. I've been using the ESV But just for consistency's sake, we're going to make this move. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. We would love you to bring your Bible to church. We would love you to go through and follow along in your Bible as we go through these messages. The more that we can understand what is in God's Word, the more that is that we can understand who God is. And when we understand who God is, we can understand who it is that God created us to be. And so we're going to start in the beginning. Now, i got a question for you, and it's a serious question. Okay, it kind of plays on an old joke, but here we go. If there was nobody that had yet been created, no one existed at the time of the Big Bang, was it really a Big Bang? Was there really noise? Serious question. Did it even, did it even happen if there was nobody there to witness it? This is the stuff that we try to ask ourselves and things that we try to trip each other up on. And when it comes to the Bible, we ask these kinds of questions and we hold the Bible accountable to things the Bible doesn't even present, it doesn't even talk about. And so this theory is the theory of the Big Bang. That's the beginning of everything, right? Was it really a Big Bang? How do we know? How do we know it made any noise? If there was no one there to witness it, how do we know it happened? That's why science calls it a theory. So we're going to look at another way that the world has come to understand the beginning of all things. Is the Big Bang factual? Is there scientific evidence to that? There's some, there's some uh, passionate scientists out there that want us to believe that the Big Bang theory, and that's what it is, it's an explanation, it's a possible option, is the only way that we could possibly understand how everything that there is came into existence. But the fact of the matter is, There were three living beings at the time of these events. God, God's Son, and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that there wasn't anybody there. Those three existed. But it isn't called the Big Bang in the book of Genesis where it's described. And so what are we really dealing with? Some cosmic conspiracy theory or scientific truth? Whatever we want to call it, God actually was there. God is the one behind it. The word Genesis is beginning. And so when we say in the beginning, it truly is the beginning, but it isn't the beginning of God. It's the beginning of the world and the things that we see and know and live. It's the beginning of our understanding of history. It's God's accounting of these events. So if you've got your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Even if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's okay. That's part of why we're starting here. It's at the very beginning. The very first thing that we read when we open the Bible. And this opening verse has become one of my absolute favorites because of how much it says in so few words. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Pretty simple, huh? But it says a lot. See, the, the Old Testament was written entirely in the Hebrew language, all of it. The New Testament has Greek and Aramaic. But Old Testament is all Hebrew. And Hebrew-thinking people a few thousand years ago when the Old Testament was written essentially asked two questions. There was two things that they wondered about. There, there, was, there was two points that they wanted to make sure that every explanation had. Who did what? We've inherited Greek thinking and we asked why and what was their motivation and is that really what they meant and how did they feel about it? And we asked all these other questions. But in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, looking to answer those two questions, you'll get them every time. Who did what? It seems really simple, but God is starting with an explanation that we can actually understand. See, the Big Bang Theory is a whole different set of Things It goes way beyond who did what. So let's talk about who did what. In the beginning, think about that. God is the who. Created is the what. For thousands of years, science has tried to put more information to that. But in the beginning, it describes who was there. It describes where we came from. And even as we go on a little bit in the Bible, it talks about how God did it. It even gives us more information. The Bible says that God spoke and everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that we understand came into existence. In the Latin language, there's a a phrase that's called ex nihilo. You don't have to know what it means. I'm going to tell you ex nihilo is out of nothing. Everything that exists came to being out of nothing. The spoken word of God, the Bible says. Hebrews 11.3 says, It's by faith that we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It doesn't make sense to us because that's not the way that our world works. But we struggled with this idea throughout history. See, God created everything that we see and know out of absolutely nothing. The only raw ingredients that God had to work for was His imagination, the company of His Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and His spoken word. And those things combine to create everything that we see, everything that we know. Everything that is something came from nothing. Not even science can pull that one off. Creating something physical or living out of nothing is something that's been tried forever, but it just isn't possible. The Bible opens with this phrase because it's true and it lays the foundation for everything else that follows. And what it does is it's the first example in Scripture of God's power to create. What's interesting is it follows and it says that it was formless and empty and the darkness hovered over everything. And it's interesting, as I read that preparing for this message today, I realized that's you and I without God. We're kind of formless and empty, and there's a darkness that surrounds us because we don't know the truth. And so what we do is we try to create explanations that maybe aren't true, but they're satisfying. But see, the Bible, the Bible goes beyond that, and it gives us the facts. There was this thing in the scientific community that kind of came to a head in the middle of the 18th century. It had been an understanding for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They started calling it spontaneous generation. It's the idea that living things grew out of non-living material. So think about it. If you are walking down the road, and it's a few hundred years ago, and you see an animal that's dead, and there's these little white things crawling in it, you assume that out of the dead animal from nowhere came these things that we now know as maggots, right? 
You've got a bucket of clean water and you leave it outside for a few days and you realize after you forgot about it for a couple of weeks, there's an algae that forms on the top. Clearly, out of nowhere, that algae started to grow. They didn't have an explanation beyond that. They didn't understand all kinds of things that we understand now. Somehow, non-living material gave life to what is now living. But they were able to disprove that. Some scientists could say that that's not how it happened at all, and yet that was the theory that carried on for so long, and it's like so many other scientific theories because what they do is try to explain in terms that we understand that which we cannot understand. And we've got to realize the difference. The Big Bang is a similar type of theory. Theories take what we know and what we see and what we've experienced, and they create an explanation that we can comprehend in order to describe something that we don't actually understand. Let's go back a few thousand years. Let's go back to that moment of creation. Do you think if God had given, given us a detailed example, a word-by-word, moment-by-moment accounting of exactly what happened at creation, do you think we'd even be able to comprehend it? Would we even be able to grasp it? I don't think we would. And so I think what God did, just like in giving us Jesus as a way to understand him, God made it simple for us. And in the Bible it says, in the beginning God created I can work with that. That I can understand. I can trust that. That explanation in the Bible is good enough for me. For a lot of people, that makes it impossible or unbelievable. And yet those opening words of Scripture introduce us to our Creator God who has a long history of making the impossible possible and turning the unbelievable into the believable. And I wholeheartedly believe that when history plays out and we come to the end of things on this earth... Every single person, the Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think when we get to that point, every single human being who has ever doubted God's word in Scripture is going to look back and they're going to see, ah, that's what it said. That's what it meant. Now I understand. I didn't see that part of it before. I think we're going to look back and God's word is going to be 100% unerringly, perfectly accurate. So Genesis goes on and talks about six days of creation, and on the seventh day God rested. I've always thought that was interesting. How hard was creation? I mean, he was just talking, right? He was speaking, and stars were showing up, and planets, and universes, and all kinds of cool things, and plants, and animals, and all this stuff happens. God didn't need to rest. What God did was modeled rest for us. God modeled Sabbath. God modeled taking a day of way and, and just taking it easy and putting all the work that we do and all the troubles that we have during the week aside and focusing on God. It's what you're doing right now. You're taking a moment to focus on God. You're taking a moment to take a look at what God is doing in your world. God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested because we need to rest. And then something interesting happened. As we continue to read Genesis, and I would encourage you to continue to read it on your own, God took a look at everything that he called good, and he said, you know, it's missing something. It's missing something. And so God went about creating man from the dust of the ground, from the earth that he had created. God created man. And then he breathed his breath of life into the man, and the man became a living creature. Out of the dust of the ground, God created man, and God breathed his breath of life into him. And then it says that God planted a garden, and he called it Eden. He didn't just speak and make it happen. God went to the effort of creating this perfect place called the Garden of Eden. 
And he put the man in the garden to live and to enjoy and to care for God's creation. It wasn't that the man that's called Adam didn't have to do anything. He was called to care for the garden. He worked the garden. He got to take enjoyment out of having something to do. Genesis 2 says, But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are, you are sure to die. One rule God gave Adam. One rule. Just Adam here. That's all that's on earth right now. One rule, one prohibition, one law. There's that one tree. You can look at it. You can enjoy it. You can see the fruit. No, the Bible does not say it was an apple tree. The odds are great it was not an apple tree. But you can't eat the fruit of it because if you do, something in you is going to change. You're going to have broken my rule, that one rule, and something is going to change. And it, and it isn't going to be good because... What's going to change? You are sure to die. Adam is going to have broken God's command and there will be a price to pay. So all God says is there's one rule. Don't eat that one fruit. And then God goes on. He says, you know what? I'm not done. I'm not done being creative yet. I'm not done. I'm not done creating things around. And so God says it's not good for the man to be alone in verse 18. I will make a helper who is just right for him. I realize this is unpopular, but this verse brings about a whole lot of controversy for some reason in our world. What God is about to do is to create Eve, a woman. See, it's perfectly clear in the Bible that God's understanding of men and women and his intention and his plan for us. God lays it out in Scripture. I don't know that that was his intention for the original people that read it, but I have to believe that history is coming around and God says, I hope they pay attention to this part. See, God has His plan for us. See, God hasn't changed. His plan for us hasn't changed. We've changed. We've changed what we want to be God's intention. We've changed because we've changed our desires. Men and women, scripturally, are created to be partners, co-laborers, to be equally respected and equally accountable to each other. God says, I will make a, a helper who is just right for him. And then there's some people that want to go and they want to cling to that verse from Ephesians 5.22 about women being submissive to men. And that's an interesting thing because it jumps over and ignores so much of the rest of the Bible. It takes everything else out of context. And so for those folks that want to believe that somehow men are superior and, and Eve is the problem and began sin in the first place, we need to stop and we need to look back and look at the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, it's written by Solomon. And he spends time in Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31. And he talks about what a God-honoring woman is and what a treasure she is. And it talks about who she is and what she's like. And it just sounds so incredible. But here's the thing. There are some religious people who take those verses and say, women, that's what you're accountable to being. And this passage in Ephesians says, this is who the man gets to be. And what they do is they overlook all the 30 chapters in Proverbs leading up to that point. And I've always found that interesting. I don't know why there's not a men's study. There's the Proverbs 31 women. How come there's not a Proverbs 1 through 30 man? Never quite understood that because that's God's plan. See, 30 chapters on what it is to be a man of wisdom and honor. What it is to be a man who is worthy of a Proverbs 31 woman. See, we live in this world where even God's words twisted and turned, and we use it for our own spiritual and personal sense of superiority, and that pride is the root of sin. 
That pride of wanting to be like God is what tripped up Adam and Eve. So we go back to the book of Genesis, and there's another creature that comes onto the scene. It's the serpent. And the serpent one day slithers on up to the woman's ear, this age-old enemy of God, and he starts hissing in her ear and planting seeds of doubt. The first seeds of doubt ever to trouble a human mind. And he took what was God's words and he twisted them just a little bit. And he said them so convincingly that they, they almost seemed correct, but it was a lie. It was an intentional deception. It was intended to trip the woman up. And even after that simple clarity of God's one rule, the man and woman choose, chose their own version of happiness, their own version of what they thought was better, that they decided they were smarter than God. And with one bite of that forbidden fruit, that monster called sin with, with its voracious appetite for human hearts and its ability to separate and divide us from each other and from God was born. Scripture says, if you go back and read it, that actually God told Adam about that tree and not eating the fruit. Eve hadn't even been created yet. She didn't even exist. And this is where a lot of sermons throughout history have really gotten it wrong, I'm quite certain. See, the serpent went to Eve not because she had a problem, not because she was wrong, but because Eve had been told by Adam what God had said. She was hearing it secondhand, and the serpent knew that she would be the weaker link only because he could get her to doubt. Did Adam really hear it correctly, and did Adam really tell you correctly, or did something get wrong? Are you sure you heard and remember, Eve? And Eve has been blamed for introducing sin into humanity, but my question is, where was Adam when this serpent was hissing in his helper's ear. The garden couldn't have been that big. He had one responsibility, and that was her and to care for the garden. Where was he? Well, it, it seems that he wasn't where he should have been, which was by her side, I don't know. In modern context, maybe he was on vacation, he was out getting a tan, maybe he was uh, looking at the flowers, maybe he was watching a football game, maybe he was trying to get in a little extra ice fishing. I don't know. But he wasn't where he should have been, and he opened Eve up to the serpent. Whatever he was doing, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing. He was absent. He was silent, and he was weak. He was hiding from danger and responsibility. I don't know. Maybe he was afraid of snakes. But he wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't acting like a man worthy of that Proverbs 31 woman that God had created for him. And I wonder for how many of us does that speak truth to? It's so easy to expect the woman in our lives to maintain the house, and whether this is as a young man looking at your mom or whether it's as a husband looking at your wife, it's so easy to expect the woman to maintain the house and keep the fridge full of all the food that you want and then turn them into fantastic meals even though you couldn't find enough to make toast. Raise the kids, pay the bills. Yes, that's what happens at our house. Pay the bills, but don't spend too much money, certainly not on yourself. Have a job that doesn't get in the way of any of the responsibilities that they have for us at home. And oh, by the way, make sure you keep yourselves husbands. You want to make sure your wife keeps herself looking attractive for you, right? And what are we doing for those women? Probably not as much as we should have, just like Adam. So now Adam and Eve have sinned. They've broken the one rule that God has given them because they fell for the lie of the serpent by eating the fruit that God had forbidden. So they would have their eyes open that they would be like God, knowing good and evil, the Bible says. Well, who doesn't want to be like God? You know what? Since the beginning of creation, people have tried to turn ourselves into God. 
But prior to this, prior to that serpent hissing his first words, all they knew was paradise. All they knew was the most perfect place that God had created. It was their arrogance and their vanity and their desire to be like God that got the best of them. And you know what? It still gets the best of us today. And we've only gotten into the first few verses of Genesis. And yet we see ourselves in those very first people. We try to take the place of God when we believe that we can, we can, what's popular today, we can change our gender at a whim. You can call yourself anything you want. Hi, my name's Steve. I'm a unicorn. Maybe a cowboy. That'd be really cool. We try to be God by taking the life of unborns and feel good about it and call it medical care. We take the words of the Bible and we literally change them into what we want them to say. We change them to say what we want to hear rather than to hearing what it is that God had for us to hear and understand and how to know Him. The trouble is that both Malachi in the Old Testament and Hebrews in the New Testament tell us that God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's Word is unchanging. See, because God is the same, though, we can know that just like with Adam and Eve, He created you and I to have the very best that He has for us. He created you for His very best. That's why God sent Jesus. That's the point that God makes in the book of Genesis. tells us in verse 7 of chapter 3 that Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, they sewed fig leaves together in order to cover themselves. Why did they do that? Because one of the results of eating the tree from that forbidden tree, the fruit that they were supposed to leave alone, was that suddenly they knew they were naked. That had never been an issue before. See, shame isn't a part of God's design and plan for us. Feeling guilty isn't what God created us to be. It's actually a call to repentance. But in their new state of sinfulness, they also knew shame and guilt. But you know, God being who He is... God didn't leave it like that for very long. He didn't let them live in their guilt and shame. And God doesn't want you to live in guilt and shame. Genesis 3.8 says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, you've just every once in a while I tell you to imagine a movie in your mind reading the Bible. Put this into the scene of a movie for a moment. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. They heard God walking in the garden. In all of history, that has got to be the greatest sound that's ever been heard by anyone. I cannot imagine. You know what their response was? You know what their reaction was? They didn't go run and say, Hey God, this place you made is awesome. Thank you for this life. Sorry that we goofed up. You told us one thing. Please forgive us. But we're so grateful for what you've done. No, you know what they did instead? They ran. They hid. They hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, and as incredible as that is, most awesome noise ever heard, and yet because of their sin, they ran and hid, and they couldn't savor the moment when God came to visit them. So they hid. How often have you and I missed the presence of God in our life because we were either lost in our sin or were hiding from God because we were ashamed of our sin? This simple story about these two people has got so much of our lives wrapped up in it. 1 John 3.20 says, Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and He already knows everything. So chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord God calls out to the man, Where are you? Why did He call out to the man? Because the man was the one who He gave the prohibition to. The man was responsible for the sin. Adam had told his wife, That's true. 
But God went to the one who he had spoken to to begin with. Where are you? Why does he have to say that? Because they're actively hiding from God. And God calls out to the man. He calls out to the man the way that you would for a child if you're in a busy mall and the kid ran away. Or if you're in a park and they took off and a bunch of people. Or you're at a parade and they disappeared in the crowd. Hey, and you'd yell the kid's name and then you'd start to get worried. But God doesn't get worried because he knows exactly where they are. But it's the same reason that a parent calls out for their child. Because they want to make sure that they stay connected, right? God knows that Adam and Eve need them. Because God cares. Even in their sin, God cared about Adam and Eve. Even in their disobedience, God still wanted a relationship with them. God wants that same relationship with you and I. And yet our sin causes us to hide and to run, and our shame and our guilt can overtake us. So Adam responds. He says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He doesn't say anything about the sin. He doesn't say anything about eating the fruit. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid from you the God who created me from the dust of the ground because I realized I was naked. And this is supposed to be a surprise to God? And I think about our reasons and our excuses and our justifications for our own sin. God's got to just be so sick of hearing it by now. God's response was this. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. How do you know you're naked, Adam? How do you even know what naked means? We've never had that conversation. That's not a word that we've used. See, the understanding here is less that Adam is concerned that he's physically naked. It's that Adam finally realizes because of his sin, he is spiritually and emotionally exposed to God. The darkest side of Adam's heart is known. God says, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? God gives Adam time for confession and apology. And this is awesome. This, this, what should have been just this incredibly holy moment of God coming to visit in the garden in the cool of the evening. And he and Adam have this conversation. Have you eaten the fruit from the uh, tree from the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Adam says, the man replied in verse 12, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. What's his response? It's all her fault and yours, God. She gave me the fruit and you gave me her. I'm the victim. I had nothing to do with it. That's Adam's honest answer. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. God, you are responsible in the end. It is your fault. How often do we blame God because of our decisions? It started with Adam. Not only does he blame Eve, he blames God. And God, the Lord God, asks the woman, what have you done? So he turns to her for the truth, and she says, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Ah, a little bit of truth. The serpent deceived me. She isn't blaming the serpent. She's admitting that she believed the serpent's lies over God's truth. What is the root of our sin? We believe the lies and the temptations of the devil over the truth of God. Still hasn't changed. We haven't gotten out of the very beginning of the book of Genesis yet. 
So then God curses the serpent above all other creatures. God tells the serpent that serpents and people will forever be at odds against each other. Then God looks to the woman and the man. Instead of cursing them, he pronounces judgment and says, your decision to sin is going to change our relationship. It's going to be more difficult for you because of your sin and your refusal to be obedient to me. Things are going to get tougher for you. See, God never created us for a tough life. Our choices give us a tough life. When we stray from God, when we leave His protection, when we step outside of His will and we break His laws, our life gets difficult. And this explains why. Verse 24, God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. It says, God the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. Your image of cherubim angels are these cute little Scandinavian boys and girls with blue eyes and blonde hair, and they're just cute chubby little babies, right? Chubby little babies aren't guarding the gate of the Garden of Eden. Cherubim are terrifying angels. He gave cherubim to uh, to the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the cherubim, these fierce angels, are guarding the way in and the swords are guarding the tree itself. Adam and Eve, see, they were given charge of guarding and protecting this perfect place that is the Garden of Eden. But they failed in that responsibility and so God sent a warrior angel and a flaming sword to do what they wouldn't. Think of how much in your life God has charged you with protecting. Think of how much God has entrusted to your care and what are you doing with it. See, God didn't make the Garden of Eden go away. He just removed them from the Garden of Eden because they couldn't handle it. And He sent them away. And so what we see in the beginning, in the very beginning, is a theme that carries on throughout the entirety of the Bible that what is impossible to us that doesn't make sense to us is impossible, excuse me, is possible for God. It may be impossible for us to understand, but it is possible for God to do. It may be impossible for us to solve, but it is possible for God to win. God shows his tremendous love for us as people, and yet people choose sin over God's will. Sin that is punished, and God warned them before they ever did anything of what was going to happen. And yet God does with them what He does over and over and over throughout Scripture and what He does for you and I. And that's to provide a means of redemption so there can be a relationship between people and the people of God's creation. See, God isn't the one that's goofing it up. We are. We're the ones that can't handle the simple rules that God gives us. And so there's punishment. And life is hard. And living as people is difficult because we choose difficult. See, Jesus is God's plan to redeem us from our sinful nature. Jesus is God's gift to save us from our own self-destruction. After 25 years of trying to figure out how to put it into words, to me, that's what it is. Jesus is God's response to my self-destructive behavior. Jesus is God's response to your self-destructive behavior. Jesus is God's response to us breaking the simple rules that God puts down. So Jesus comes along and he gets to the last day of his life and he tells us that we are to proclaim his death, not his resurrection. We're to proclaim his death, the price that he paid for us until he returns by remembering what he did for us on the cross through the communion. Through Holy Communion is how we proclaim the death of the Lord. Resurrection Sunday, we get to celebrate 
that he's raised from the grave to a new life, and we have the opportunity for a new life. But when Jesus told his disciples to celebrate communion, it was to remember his death, to proclaim his death until he comes again. And that's what we're going to do now. Recognizing that that story that seems so simple, it, it seems like a telling for children, not for grown adults. That telling of in the beginning is so profound for us today that we could spend the rest of our life talking about it and still not get a grip. Because we still do the very thing that they did in the beginning. We choose our own way and we walk away from God. God, thank you for your simple but truthful telling of in the beginning. (coughs) Thank you for your desire, your unending, unshakable desire to be in a relationship with us. God, we have to come to you and confess that even as much as we want to tell you that we love you with our whole heart, we make decisions every day that prove otherwise. It it, proves it to us, it proves it to the world, and it proves it to you. God, truly, without your Son Jesus and the hope that we have in Him, our lives are formless and void. They're empty and filled with darkness, just like what everything was in the beginning. So God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what it is that you have done for us in Jesus that we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you, God, that despite our sin, you still love us. Thank you that you desire more than anything else in all of the universe to have a personal relationship with each and every one of us. So as we come forward now and we partake in the Lord's Supper, God, help us to be mindful of our sinfulness. Help us to be mindful of our need for a Savior to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then, God, I just pray that in your Holy Spirit you would work on each and every one of us, that we wouldn't say that these stories or these examples are for somebody else, God. They're for all of us. That's what you meant. Help us to be people who accept you, who accept your gift of Jesus, and who live with gratitude for all that you do for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.